Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of Zechariah. And we are going to be looking at the subject of joy this morning. I, um, I want you to see just the sovereignty of God at work. Uh, we've been preaching through, we've been preaching through the book of Zechariah, so I'm wondering where to go next. Um, and, uh, and yet we want to focus on these themes. And so wouldn't you know it that the very next text in Zechariah is a text on joy. Um, and so the Lord knows exactly what He's doing. Uh, so I'm excited about this text. I think there's a lot for us <clears throat> as the people of God to learn about joy. I have to also be honest and tell you this week, I've learned over the last two weeks actually, I've learned a lot about joy. When, As a man, I'm just going to own this, when you're told to go preach on joy, on the face of it, that doesn't feel very manly. Uh, I think of joy and I think of one of the uh, little candies at Valentine's Day that come in hearts. You know, the little ones that have words on them that taste like chalk. Um, and I, that's what I think of when I think of joy. If, if you had to make a t-shirt with the only word on it being joy, I don't know how you would make that manly. Um, and so joy just isn't a word that's in my vocabulary much as a Western man. I don't call my friends and say, did you see that touchdown? Yes, friend says, I was filled with great joy. I would say, what? <laughs> really? <laughs> okay. And yet, Joy needs to be part of my vocabulary. It is part of our vocabulary as Christians. It is important to our vocabulary. So I hope you'll enjoy it as much as I will. I won't be making any t-shirts, but I will hopefully be using it more. So Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 through 17 starts with this. Rejoice. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace. To the nations, his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return from your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow, and I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. And then the Lord will appear over them, and His arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them. Then they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl drenched like the corners of the altar. And on that day, their Lord, their God, will save them as the flock of His people 
For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on in His land. For how great is His goodness. And how great is His beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. Let's pray. Lord, these are amazing promises. These were amazing promises when written to Your people thousands of years ago about how You would take care of them. And Lord, You held to them to every last detail. And Lord, these still are amazing promises for us as much of this has yet to happen. And so we hold on for those. So Father, I pray that in this Advent season, in this season to focus us on the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, and to remind us of His initial inauguration as Emmanuel in the Incarnation. Father, I pray that You would use this message to stir up our affections, to bring and arise within us a desire to see Christmas come, and Lord, to be reminded that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. I pray for that, Lord. I pray that Your Spirit will move in the hearts of Your people. Let us learn about Christian joy from Your Word. And Lord, that You would secure it as You see fit by Your Spirit. In Your name we pray. Amen. Alright. If you'd like to take notes, and you have a handy little place to do that, um, uh, six points. Six tenets of Christian joy this morning that we're going to march through together from this text. In the book of Zechariah, we get few imperatives. That is, we get few commands. There are few places in this book where we're told, go do this or don't do this. Be honest, it makes it hard as a preacher. As a preacher, you like having those commands because it gives you something to go after. Well, here we get one. It's one of the rare places and we get a command But we get an odd command. In verse 9, this is an imperative. This is a command. It says, rejoice. And it doesn't just say rejoice. It says, rejoice greatly or abundantly. We are commanded to rejoice. That is, we're commanded to be joyful. Now, I don't know about you, but for my contemporary ears, that sounds odd. That sounds a little bit to me like a parent commanding a child to eat your vegetables and be happy about it, right? How do you command somebody to happiness? How do you command them to be joyful? And yet, if you follow the biblical picture on this, there is strong biblical precedent for this same thing. That is, across the pages of Scripture, we hear the writers tell us to be joyful. We see it in the prophets. We most explicitly see it in the Psalms. A couple of examples. Psalm 2, we get, "...serve the Lord with fear," that's a command, "...and rejoice," that is, be joyful with trembling." We're commanded to joy. In Psalm 32, the righteous are commanded, be glad in the Lord and to rejoice and shout for joy. So he tells us, be glad, that's a command, and rejoice, that's a command, and when you do it, shout. It's a command. So, by the very nature of this, we know that this isn't unique to Zechariah, and I think it 
helps us grab our first tenet, our first point about Christian joy. First point about Christian joy. Christian joy is not passive, it is active. Christian joy is not passive, it is active. That is, Christian joy is something we must actively cultivate and not wait for it to merely passively happen to us. Christian joy is something that we must actively cultivate. Cultivate, And that is a change in thinking for most of us. Oftentimes we say things such as, well, I'm just not happy like I used to be. I'm just not as content as I used to be. I just don't have the joy that I used to have. And we act as if there's nothing we can do about this. We bear no responsibility for our joy. It is merely something that happens to us that we are merely those who receive the action of joy. And yet the Bible commands us to joy, which means we can own it. We can be responsible for joy. I think this is incredibly helpful. Not only do we see throughout the Scriptures that the uh, writers of Scripture command others to joy, and in the psalmist that the psalmist command others to joy, the interesting thing is the psalmist command themselves to joy. This is why I love the Psalms. In Psalm 43, he says, Why are you cast down, O soul? He's talking to himself. (laughs) This is really helpful. Why are you cast down, O soul? O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Go hope in God. He's preaching to himself. He is telling himself, Get active in your joy. And I think this is helpful for my own life. Every once in a while, it's real helpful to preach to yourself. To lay out a sermon for yourself and say, here self is what you need to hear. And every once in a while, one of the sermons we need is self, be joyful. Now I hope throughout the rest of the sermon, you'll have more details to add to that sermon for yourself. I hope that you'll gain some things to go with it. So first and foremost, Christian joy is not a passive joy. It is active. And then notice there in Zechariah uh, uh, verse 9, he doesn't just command them the joy, but he but he, he gives them a foundation, a cause for the joy. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold your King is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is He humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Why should the people rejoice? They should rejoice because their King is coming. This brings us to our second point, our second tenet on Christian joy. Christian joy is person-centered. Christian joy is centered on a person. And then we learn some incredible things about this person. As the passage goes on, we learn that he is a king. Behold, your king is coming to you. Second, we learn that he's humble. He's a humble king. How do we know that? Well, he's mounted on a donkey. Third, we learn that he comes with a purpose. He comes to bring peace. We learn that he is closely associated with the Lord. So that's in verse 14 through 16. So closely associated with the Lord, it's as if He is the Lord God Himself. Fifth, we learn that He 
is a shepherd. And not only is he a shepherd, but look at verse 16. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of the people. He is not just a shepherd, but he is a shepherd bent on saving. So put all those together. Just think about that. As a New Testament Christian, you're given this description of this one. Now, this is the Messiah. This is the one they're hoping for. And here's how the Old Testament describes Him. This should cause your heart to flutter. It's a king who's humble, who comes to bring peace, is closely associated with God so that it sounds like He is God, and He's a shepherd. <laughs> who can that be? You just can think of a slew of texts of the New Testament to apply here and go, we got them. I'm going to pick John chapter 10. Out of words, out of the mouth of Jesus Himself, I am the good what? shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. For this reason the Father loves me because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. Now wait a second. We've got a shepherd who's a good shepherd who lays down his life so he's a saving shepherd and yet he has the ability to take his, to, to lay down his own life whenever he wants to and he has the ability to take it back up. Only God himself has that ability. I have the authority to lay it down. It sounds like the authority of a king. And I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from the Father. And yet He's a king who can receive charges. Sounds like a humble king. That's Jesus. The Christian joy, Christian joy is centered on a person. And not just any person. Christian joy is centered on the person Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Jesus Christ, and this is, the, this is the object of all Christian joy, is the most beautiful, wonderful human being to ever live or that ever could live. He is strong and carries the authority of a king and yet He is humble and kind. He judges with ruthless precision and brings down nations without breaking a sweat and yet He is the most peaceful person to ever walk the planet. He is God Himself, wholly different than every single one of us and yet He has come close. He has drawn near in a Emmanuel as God with us. While He has the power and the right to destroy us for our sinfulness, He instead wore our sinfulness on the cross where He drank the Father's wrath down to every last drop. And He did not stay in the grave. Because had He stayed in the grave, then our joy would have stayed in the grave buried forever. He gave us an amazing gift on the cross, but He gave us just His amazing gift when He walked out of the tomb. Because when He walked out of the tomb, the center of Christian joy, the hope of the whole world, God Himself came forth and we will treasure Him forever. Christian joy is centered on a person. It is centered on the person of Jesus Christ. And it is centered on our Messiah, Jesus, the Anointed One.
See, Christian joy is not merely passive. It's active. Christian joy is centered on the person of Christ. Next. One thing you'll notice is he starts, Zechariah starts this section with a command. Be joyful. And then the rest of it is grounding as to why you should be joyful. That's the way the whole passage there flows. Go be joyful. And here's why. He gives us things focused in both the past, but most of it you're going to see that the predominant grounding is in the future. So He tells us, be joyful now, that's present, because of some things in the past, but predominantly because of what's coming in the future. And I want you to see the past there in verse 11. The Israelites are told, as for you also... Because of, that's the grounding language, that's the cause language. Because of the blood of my covenant with you. So he tells them, you should be joyful because of something that's happened in the past. Now for the Israelites at that time, what is he talking about? Well, we know what he's talking about. He's talking about what happens in Exodus 32. You remember when Moses is given the law, after he gives the law to his people, he is told to slaughter an oxen. And then he's, he's got all this blood and he's supposed to take half the blood and do one thing and half the blood and do the other. First, he's supposed to take half the blood and throw it against what? The altar. And then he's supposed to take the rest of the blood. This really happens. He takes the rest of the blood and he, he takes it and throws it on the people. So you got people standing there with blood dripping down their faces. Blood in their hair. Blood on their clothes. And that's what he's talking about. He's grounding their joy in the fact that a covenant has been made for them in the past. And obviously, we don't have to work hard as Christians to figure out, well, I wonder what that covenant could be signifying in Christ. That's not hard at all. Blood that's shed, that half is put on the altar, that would be the blood that Jesus shed on the cross, right? And the other half is sprinkled on the people. Praise God. That's the blood that flows from the cross of Christ over you and I so that our sins are what? Covered. Removed. So he grounds part of their joy in the past. And so our tenet here, third tenet for Christian joy, or third point about Christian joy is Christian joy is experienced in the present while grounded in the past and especially in the future. Christian joy is experienced in the present while grounded in the past, but especially in the future. Most of the section, there's that little bit in verse 11 about the past, but most of the section is, is joy grounded in the future. It's of things God is going to do that they grab hold of. So these things that are way out in the future, but they grab hold of those. There's a gap, and we talked about this in, in Christian growth this morning. There's a gap between right now and what's coming, and there's a way to, to, to uh, fill that gap, and it's called the gift of faith. Faith takes us right now. That's what all faith does. It takes us right now and says, I am going to help you understand what life is like in the future. That's why you will not need faith in this way in heaven. Right? You'll experience it all at once. But faith, faith is that. So now notice this. In verses 10 through 13, he tells them that he's going to defend them against the Greeks. 
Now you and I, we can look back on history. We understand exactly what he's talking about. We know about Alexander the Great. We know about how he conquered the, the, the world hundreds of years after this. And we understand that a really freaky thing happened when he got to the Israelites out of nowhere. Which should have just been easy. Knock them out. He decides to leave them alone. Historians are still scratching their heads. Why would he just leave them alone? He'll just leave them alone because hundreds of years before, before there was even a Greek empire, in the book of Zechariah, God writes down and says, I'm going to take care of you against, the, against Greece. Now this has to come very odd to the people of Israel. They aren't struggling against Greece at the time. They're struggling against Persia. And God gives them a promise on a day and says, don't worry, I'm going to take care of the Greeks. That would be like you and I getting a promise when we have concerns about Iran and North Korea and God saying, don't worry, I've got the Canadians under control. Really? We weren't too worried about the mounted men. Um, that was not on the forefront of our picture. That's exactly how it sounds to them. And yet it's a promise of God and it is a promise that He will fulfill in the future. And yet... Most of it, verses 14 and 17, is about a battle that has yet to come still now. It's about Armageddon. It's the end times. It's a promise of a deep, deep fulfillment that will happen when Christ comes again. So our present joy is predominantly grounded in the future. Now just stop for a second and just let that soak in. What should make and ground most of my happiness and joy today? I, I think this is, this is life-changing. Is not what's happening today and really what's not even going to happen in my lifetime. But the predominant bank of my joy should be sitting in the future. That is distinctly Christian Joy. Now don't get me wrong, the past does help. We are those who look back at the cross. That's the beauty of living in what we call the already, not yet. Already the cross happened. We look back at the cross and we love it. But folks, we are not created to be people who bank things in the past very long. We bank in the future. I know this from being a kid. Every year we got a new set of shoes for school. That just came. It was beautiful. And every time I'd be so excited when the school year would start, I would put those shoes, I would keep them in the box for about the first two days. I mean, even the wrapper, I'd get them done and I'd put them back in the box every night. I'm going to do this. And then it got, well, that's a lot to get in the box, so maybe I should just, you know, I know. I will make sure I untie my shoes every time I take them off. And every time I put them back on, I'll make sure that I don't put on shoes that are already tied. Yeah, that lasts about another week, right? So by week two... I'm rolling in with these brand new shoes that were, I mean, they were my life two weeks ago. And now all of a sudden I'm kicking them off, not untying them, next morning in a rush, wedging my foot in them as if it's going to work, right? And the back of them is crunched down, they've got dirt on them, they've already got gum. Somebody broke the rules at school and chewed gum, right? We are not people who can live off of pure past and only present. We are people who live and thrive off of anticipation of the future. Another example from childhood that I think we can all relate to. I don't know about you, but for me, Christmas Eve was 
almost always better than Christmas Day. That was the most awesome and yet most horrible night of the year, right? I mean, you would stay away. I'm pretty sure that was a hoof that just landed on the roof. I'm pretty sure, right? I mean, it would kill me. I would wake up eight times an hour. Is it time yet? Is it time yet? Is it time yet? I mean, just so excited about Christmas Eve. Why? Because I'm a creature built by God. And God built me to love anticipation. And so, might I suggest that we need to be people who bank our hope in the future. Who get into the Word and say, Dear Word, I bet there are tons of promises for me that won't be experienced until after I'm dead. Let me have them. And let me deposit them into my bank account. Because brothers and sisters, you've heard me say it once, I'll probably say it another hundred times, at least until it stops being a bestseller. As Christians, our best life is not here and now. Our best life is coming. Praise God. Jesus Himself. You say, well, Tim, that seems a little odd to live like that in the future. How about the only person to walk the earth who knew the entire future also did the same thing? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. He's the author and the perfecter of our faith. So get, get the argument there. Let us run. How? With, with something set before us. And as we do that, we're going to look at somebody else as an example. And who's that somebody else going to be? Jesus. Catch this. Who for the joy that was set before Him, that's the future part, endured the cross, that's the present part, despising the shame, didn't enjoy it, and is now, that's the future part, that's the anticipated part, the realized part, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What did Jesus do? He didn't go to the cross acting as if, well, it's really not that big of a deal. No, He went to the cross despising the shame. He hated it. He knew that the night before, right? We know that. He hated it. And yet the whole time, He endured the cross. And it tells us how. It gives us the model that Jesus Christ used on the cross the entire time. He had His mind set on the joy before Him. What's coming afterwards? That's how He could take the wrath of the Father. Christian joy is experienced in the present while grounded in the past, but especially in the future. Now this next point is a circumstantial point out of the text that has to be asked. You have to ask this if you're going through Zechariah and get to this point. And that is, God, why do you take this people at this time, where they were in Ze- at the time of Zechariah is written, and do you command them to joy? If you're an Israelite, within a century of when this is written, your state is one of three things. You've either been, already been taken captive, or you're one who has been captive, lived in captivity, or you're one who's returning to a ruined land after captivity. Either you have been taken captive, you have been captive, or are captive, or you are returning to a broken land after being held captive. 
I don't know about you, but none of those screams to me joy. Right? Yeah, God writes them and says, now you go be joyful. And that's a command to be obeyed. Why? Is it because God is unmerciful? Uncompassionate? Or is it the fact that God is just unaware of the circumstances? The answer to that is a resounding no way. It would be impossible. It would actually be impossible for God to be unaware, uncompassionate, or unmerciful. And so, it must be that even in the darkest days, Christian joy can be experienced. Fourth tenet of Christian joy. Christian joy is more like a climate than a weather system. Christian joy is more like a climate than a weather system. A climate measures the general conditions of a region over a long period of time. A weather system describes the present conditions over a very short period of time. Climate, general conditions, long period. Weather system, present conditions, short period. If we try to explain the life of a believer in terms of weather systems, and hopefully this will play out in a moment for you, then folks, we're going to risk two extremes that are both unbiblical. And I'm very unhelpful. On one extreme, we may be tempted to say something like this. Every moment of every day for a believer is filled with joy. We may be tempted to say something like every moment of every day for a believer is filled with joy. If you believe that, you're either naive, numb, or dishonest. (laughs) Naive, numb, or dishonest. Like me, most of you all have lived long enough to feel too much pain to ever buy that statement. You're not going to purchase it. You know it's not true. And if this statement was hard for you to believe before Friday morning in Connecticut, I've got to imagine it's even harder to believe now. I'm sure like me, you all have watched the news reports come in and every news report seems that much harder to grab. At first, it was hard because of the numbers. How many? How young? And how quick? But then over time, those numbers became faces. And those faces have families. They have brothers and sisters and moms and dads and husbands and wives. And if you're like me, you sit and you simply cannot comprehend it. There is no category in your mind to place it in. You are lost for both words and the truth be even emotions. We aren't buying that every day in every moment for a believer is filled with joy. Pedal that all you want is not going to sell. And then on the other side, on the far other extreme, if we focus on the weather side of it, then we will be prone to ebb and flow, or as James says, be tossed about, 
with every discomfort and every disappointment and allow it to steal our joy. That is, every bad hair day or every next tragedy will send us into utter despair. Joy becomes for us like a distant cousin. Sure, we're acquainted. We see each other a couple times a year, but by no means are we familiar. There's two extremes. And I think the best way to describe those extremes is misunderstanding joy as a weather system and not as a climate. Joy for the believer is a climate. And let me be straight and honest and careful. I want to be real careful here. Joy for the believer, the climate, listen carefully, the climate for the believer is unsurpassed, amazing joy. Let me say it one more time. The climate for a believer is unsurpassed, amazing, unbelievable joy. But remember, it's measured over long periods of time and it's a general condition statement, right? So how can you say that, Tim, after what you just said? Because how long is my life going to last as a believer? Answer, a really, really, really long time. In fact... If we try to get down to the segment, the time segment that is from when I was born to when God knows I'm going to die, then it would be so small we couldn't even map it. As James says, it would be a vapor. So think of that time from when I go till eternity. And is that not a long period of time? The climate for a believer is amazing joy. So... How do we deal with life here and now? Analogy. How would you deal in Arizona with freezing temperatures? Well, you don't act like it's 110 degrees out. If you walked around in those temperatures, in freezing temperatures in Arizona, in shorts and a tank top, then people are going to think you're numb. (laughs) And maybe you will be literally. Naive. Or just... Crazy, right? What do you do when it's freezing in Arizona? You wrap up. You put on a scarf. You put on a big blanket and a heavy coat. And I don't wear blankets. I don't know why that came out. Maybe I would, but you put on a heavy coat. You put on the thermal socks. I was trying my best not to say thermal underwear, but because using the word underwear in the pulpit is never helpful. But you, you get warm, right? That's what you do. And then you realize, I won't be wearing these clothes much, right? I live in Arizona. It's 110 degrees most of the time. I don't need these clothes that often. It's the life of a believer when tragedy hits. We look at it and go, don't ignore it. Own it. Look at it and say, it's as bad as it is. Put on the clothes you got to put on to get through it. But the whole time, you better be telling yourself, don't get used to this outfit. You're not wearing this much. In fact, a day is coming soon and sooner than we all know it. We'll never wear those clothes of pain and sorrow again. The climate is joy. But oftentimes, the weather forecast is pain 
and tragedy and sorrow. But again, the climate is not just joy. It's off the charts. Amazing joy. Tenet 4, Christian joy is more like a climate and less like a weather system. I better watch my time or I'm going to have some people who are not practicing Christian joy. Alright, we're okay. Um, Christian joy greets trials and friends as foes. This is the fifth one. Christian joy greets trials and friends as foes. i got to tell you, verse 13 freaked me out. Now I'm reading it. I'm, I'm down with everything. I got you. I'm with you. Then I get to verse 13. For I have bent Judah as a bow. Now Judah's a group of people. He's saying he's bending them like a bow. Now I don't use bows much. The Native American in me should own it and act like I do, but I don't. I wouldn't really know how to do one very well. And I made Ephraim as its arrow. That's a group of people. One of them is the bow and the other one's the arrow. And I'll stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. And I'll wield you like a warrior sword. Now I'm trying to understand exactly why they should be excited about this. Because i got to be honest, I'm thinking if I'm them, the best way for you to hand us victory is, well, let's say, hand us victory. <laughs> right? We sit in lawn chairs and watch you slaughter and take care of all of our enemies and we don't have to get involved. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying, oh, you'll be involved. You'll be so much involved that you're going to feel like the bow and the arrow itself. You're going to be so involved, you're going to feel like the sword. I'm not taking you around the battle to get to your joy. I'm taking you through it. But you know what? That's helpful. Because that's how Christian joy works. Christian joy sees trials as friends and not foes. Christian joy sees trials as friends and not foes. Trials and triumphs help us because they arrest our present contentment and cause us to long for something deeper, longer lasting, and more satisfying. Let me say that again. Trials and tragedies are helpful. We actually want to use these as Christians because they arrest our present contentment and they cause us to long for something deeper, longer lasting, and more satisfying. There's so much to be said here, but time is short. Let me give you an example. It's the, I mean, the New Testament, the Pauline epistles are an example of, the, of Paul. I mean, he lives this out. He looks at every trial and says, bring it. Just bring it. I absolutely love the point when... I don't need to stay long on this and get ready to go on to a tangent. But I love it when he goes, he's getting ready to go in Jerusalem and they're like, hey, if you go to Jerusalem, they're going to arrest you and probably kill you. He says, alright, Jerusalem we go. What? Who does that? Paul. Samuel Rutherford. He, he is an interesting guy. He's born at the turn of the 17th century. He's a Scottish Presbyterian minister. And the Episcopalian church comes in and takes over Scotland. And they put him in prison and give him the death penalty. While he's in prison, but, oh, sorry, right before he goes to prison, he is played with being crippled. So just imagine that turn of events. He's pastoring a church. Things are going well. And they were going really well. He's an amazing minister. And all of a sudden, 
New folks come into town. He finds himself crippled and he finds himself in prison facing a death sentence. And what does he do? This man pins 220 letters while in prison. And none of them are like, please come help me, poor me, why me? This is a statement from Samuel Rutherford and I find it immensely helpful. Stay with it. I love, I love how he begins this. If God had told me some time ago that He was about to make me as happy as I could be in this world, and then He had told me that He should begin this by crippling me in all my limbs and removing me from my unusual sources of enjoyment, I should have thought it a very strange mode of accomplishing His purpose. And yet, how is His wisdom manifest even for this? Exclamation mark. For if you should see a man, listen closely, there is so much wisdom here. If you should see a man shut up in a closed room, idolizing a set of lamps and rejoicing in their light, and you wish to make him truly happy, you would begin by blowing out all his lamps and then throwing open the shutters to let in the light of heaven. Oh, I love this analogy. He says, I get exactly what he's doing. If I saw a man and he's sitting in a room and let's say all the blinds are closed and he's got a small little tea light candle lit and he's standing over the candle warming his hands and talking about what immense light this lets off. I absolutely love the light. How, how do you help that man? So I'll tell you how you help that man. You walk over and blow out his lamp and open up the blinds and let him taste sunlight. And you say, oh no, 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 no. That's not heat. That is not light. That is heat and light. So he looks at his life and says, why does he make me cripple? And why does he throw me in prison? Because He loves me enough to blow out my lamps. And now I realize in this dark dungeon of a prison what light really is. And so our trials and our hardships, let us not whine and bemoan them, but let us stare at them as friends. And let us say, arrest my present contentments. Bind them so I might finally see joy. Oh God, blow out my lamps. Christian joy greets trials as friends, not foes. This last point, I wish I had time to preach a dozen sermons on. And you're glad I don't. Um, This is so important in the biblical picture. Christian joy is what most glorifies God. Christian joy is what most glorifies God. Where do I get this in this text? Verse 15 through 17. This is language of great joy expressed. Incredibly happy, fully satisfied people. They shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bull. 
Now imagine that picture. He's talking about His people. He's saying they're going to drink and roar as if drunk. They're not drunk. As if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl. They're going to be beside themselves with happiness. For how great is His goodness and how great is His beauty. So He says, how great is He. Grain shall make the young men flourish and the new wine the young women. That is, they're going to eat grain. For us, that's, they're going to eat some crazy chocolate. And the, even the women get a chance to drink the wine. Now you and I go, well, why's that a big deal? That's a huge deal for them. The women only got a chance to drink the wine if there was lots of wine. And he's saying, there's going to be lots of it. There's going to be a party of parties. People are going to be overflowing with joy. Okay? Now, read this. And on that day, the Lord their God... This is scrunched up right there in the middle of it. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of His people. For like jewels of a crown, they will shine in His land. God's going to save them. And because of the saving, they are going to be ecstatic about the person of Christ, the One who saves them, their joy... And that joy is going to be... So you got these people who are excited, who are exuberant, who are happy, who are fully satisfied, and God is going to put that as a crown on His head, and they are going to sit in there with that excitement as jewels, and that will shine to the lands. Translation, God is going to be really glorified. Application. Christian joy brings maximum glory to God. Or as others have said, God is most glorified when He is not merely obeyed, but is chiefly enjoyed. God is most glorified when He's not merely obeyed, but chiefly enjoyed. And you know what? This is really not. It's a huge point. It's a Beautiful biblical point. It's all across the page of Scripture. And in some ways, it's complex for us to get a hold of. But it's really not that hard to understand. All you got to do is be a parent. Let me ask you, parents. Would you rather your kids just merely obey you? Now, let's assume they'll obey you. I know, assumption granted, okay? Alright, so would you rather them merely obey you? Or would you rather them obey you and do so with full joy? Absolutely. I understand. I get it. Thank you so much. I know it sounds foreign. I'm just telling you to imagine it, right? Thank you. You've, you've had those moments though. And they, I know they, they come rare, but you've had those moments when your child comes to you. Now, I actually haven't had this yet. He, he doesn't say anything but bad, 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 bad yet, but I translate that for him sometimes, right? But you, you have those moments when your child will come and say, you know, thank you so much. I'm glad you told me to do that because it really saved me a lot of grief. And you go, damn. Now, how much better is that than, oh, well, okay, right? I mean, compare those as a parent. When you hear, oh, okay, you're waiting for them to turn around and you're just wanting to, you know, you know that feeling, right? Try this as a lover. <clears throat> Does it feel good to you as a spouse if... If your spouse comes to you and says, you know, 
I haven't <clears throat> given you a gift lately, and I think I probably should. So here. Now, you don't have to go to a clinic on love to get how that's going to go over, right? How's that going to go over? It's going to go over like a lead balloon, right? <clears throat> it's not going to float real well. How different is it when out of nowhere your spouse comes to you, gift or no gift, let's take gift, gift and says, you know, I saw this and I thought of you. And I haven't told you lately, but you mean the world to me. And I thought, if, if I had just a little bit of money left over, there's nothing I would rather spend it on than this for you. Now, you can substitute whatever you want in for this, and it's going to work real well, right? Because the this doesn't matter. It's the fact that they cherish you. It's exactly how it is with Christian joy. Folks, our God does not merely want to be obeyed. He wants to be enjoyed. He wants to be cherished. He wants to be loved. That's why He says, worship Me in, in truth, yes, but worship Me in spirit. In the deepest part of your soul, love Me. And He is maximally glorified. So let us be a people who if we know that our God, and this is how the beginning dies to the end, is maximally glorified when we enjoy Him, then let's be a people who take responsibility for our joy. It's not active, or it's not passive, it's active. Our joy is active, not passive. It is centered in the person of Christ. It's experienced in the present while grounded in the past and the future. It's a lot more like a climate than a weather system. It greets trials as friends, not foes. And it is what gives the most glory to our Father in heaven. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word because I wouldn't have a clue in life without it. And I certainly would be clueless and helpless if I didn't have it to share with others. But Father, Your Word is powerful. It is like Your Son, both living and active. And so Father, I thank You I pray that this morning You would allow Your Word to be living and active in the lives of Your people and that You would bring joy in our hearts. Grant us the gift to be people who enjoy You. And then God, we pray that You would be glorified because of it. We ask all these things to our amazing Father through the name of Jesus the Son that they be applied in our midst by Your Spirit. Amen.